Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chinookie. We acknowledge the Satuna, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. So, Chris... Thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you so much for having me, David. Yeah, so you might have some editing work to do in the beginning there, <laughs> but that's okay because maybe you can do a sound clip of us talking shit about mm-hmm. the Baptist church down south because, <laughs> frankly, someone should talk shit about it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about yourself, dude. So you just tell your story however you want. Sure. Um, from start to finish, you got as much time as you need. Um, yeah. Usually it's an hour, hour and a half or whatever, but sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> Um, <clears throat> I haven't even rehearsed it. I, I grew up in Northern Ontario. I was born in Timmins and grew up in South Porcupine and spent my teens in North Bay. Um, I just, um, Scottish working class family. It's a small mining town and, um, you know, like typical kid of the eighties. I was a latchkey kid. Mm. I was, um, and a kid of divorce and, um, uh, I... I, I grew up very religious. Like, so when my mom left, um, my dad's mother kind of took a lead in my twin brothers and I's upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you have a twin brother? I have a twin brother, yeah. Okay. Yeah, paternal, Dr. McBain. My rehab diploma looks really nice against his PhD. It's, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, good little, yeah. And, uh, and so she kind of took on a motherly role with us. She took us to church every Sunday and, um, and that sort of thing. And... <clears throat> You know, my aunt <clears throat> says that McBain's are functional alcoholics. That's sort of our motto. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I broke the mold on the functionality of it. But, um, but like, I mean, I grew up, everybody was drinking all the time <clears throat> and lots. And um, that was just how it was. Mm-hmm. And when I was, like, if I'm thinking about kind of like some, some pivotal moments. So because I grew up religious, I didn't really have, and I was gay. Like, I didn't really have the normal teenager upbringing. Like, I didn't get to party with kids in mm-hmm. high school. I didn't. I was a good little Baptist boy um, who was in church about six or seven times a week. Uh, wow. You know, maybe that's an overkill. Like yeah, one, but maybe the yeah, Baptist like one, two, three, four, four or five times a week. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I thought I had a bad one. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so, um, it, like, growing up wasn't... Like, you know, I think, like, growing up, my childhood was really painful. Mm -hmm. Like, when I think about it, I don't look back on it. And certainly the thought of ever going back and doing things over again gives me nightmares. Mm -hmm. Because 
it just wasn't great. You know, I had a sister who, um, who I suspect died of an overdose, but, um, but when I was eight and she was 18, she had an epileptic seizure in the bathtub and drowned. And mm. my mom left when I was 10 and, uh, <clears throat> my brother kind of followed her and, um, to a different city and, um, my father was just a rageaholic, alcoholic, mean guy mm. then. Um, I mean, and I guess like looking back, I think he had, um, he had a lot going on for him. Like he's this 33 part, 33 year old party boy who mm. now has to take care of kids on his own kind mm. of thing. And so that's a lot of stress, but <clears throat> anyway, there's just not a moment, a day that I can look back in my childhood where I think fondly of it. Lots mm. of pain, lots of crying, lots of sadness, lots of fear um and um when i was about 15 or 16 i um decided that i i was starting to come to terms with my sexuality that i was gay and knew that in this small town in northern ontario with my family wouldn't exactly have the best experience so i went to live with my mother um and um and then uh as sort of time progressed you know, like, and and I started to be more ostracized by the church and started to find a footing in other things. I started to experiment with drugs, mm -hmm. smoking, and, like, I didn't smoke until I was 21. I didn't have my first joint until I was 21, but I started drinking when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And um, and I remember, like, my mother was highly critical of me, and there wasn't much happiness there either, but I remember one time at a dinner party we were, I was drinking wine with them and was cracking all kinds of jokes. And my mother said, I never realized how funny you were. Mm. And honest to God, this is the first time she's ever said anything positive about me. Wow. No word of a lie growing up. I heard how stupid I was, how fat I was, like those kinds of things. And so there's this moment where there's this sort of affirmation that like, oh, I'm, I'm all right when I'm doing this, you know? Mm. And, um, and so like I, what happens next is sort of like this intermingling of, um, you know, what is college binge drinking and what is, mm -hmm. you know, addiction. And um, turns out it was addiction. <laughs> and uh, and <clears throat> when my mother passed in 2006, I was 26. And, uh, and by then I was, you know, I had moved out to Edmonton and uh, was starting to just kind of live my life untethered mm. from my past, from my parents, from everything like that. And so, I mean, lots of, lots of weed, lots of mushrooms, lots of hash, lots of, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and when I was 26 and my mother died from breast cancer, um, somebody offered me cocaine mm. and I tried that. And then that, and then we were kind of off to the races. But the thing about being gay, at least when I was coming out and, you know, growing up, the only place to be gay was in a bar. Mm -hmm. That's the only place. There was no, there were no churches that were affirming. Mm -hmm. There were no political parties that you could, you know, there was no, mm -hmm. there was nothing healthy to be a part of. Yeah, and that's, a bar or a bathhouse or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, so it's, and, and like there's this sort of, and I'm, I like to think I'm sex positive, but like for me, there's this contorted idea of what sex and love was mm -hmm. and that um, you couldn't have one without the other. And, mm -hmm. Um, that was part of the package, but the part of the other package was, was drinking like yeah. every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, drinking to an extreme excess. Mm -hmm. And 
for some reason, I had amassed a big group of friends who thought I was hilarious, who thought I was funny. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's like, that's just, and then we threw cocaine into the mix Mm -hmm. and then like, it just went on for days. And, um, looking back, I don't think I realized quite, uh, how much trouble I was causing myself. Like Mm -hmm. there was job insecurity, there was, um, food insecurity, there was financial Mm -hmm. insecurity, there was. Um, all kinds of contorted things that were happening, weird relationships that shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was too messed up to kind of recognize it. And then uh, in Pride of 2012, I went home with this person who I just met at the bar. And uh, he drugged me and raped me. Mm-hmm. And um, a month later became so terribly ill uh, and went to the doctor and found out that I was HIV positive. And that, I think, is the moment when the party went dark. Mm-hmm. That's when there was eight balls to myself. That's, mm-hmm. you know, sitting in my room, you things know. Changed things changed yeah. and went super dark yeah. um, for a very, very long time. And, um, and you know, it's just interesting to note over the years, if you're just looking at substance and substance use, just kind of it starts light and then the frequency increases mm-hmm. The amount increases, the intensity increases with the type of drug mm-hmm. that I was using. So, I mean, if it got me up, I was there because mm-hmm. I didn't want to be down. I was mm-hmm. really running from something. And so then this, this assault happened and no one believed me. Mm-hmm. No one believed me because, quote unquote, I was a slut and it would have happened anyway or... Uh, I was just being dramatic, or I was something, and so Jesus, we do that to all the victims. Man. We do that to everybody. It is Every it's our victim. our knee jerk reaction is to not be in pain. Yeah, everybody for some reason, especially if you're coming from a white Anglo Saxon Protestant mm. sort of framework, right, where we don't talk about our feelings, we don't feel our feelings, we have a gin and we stiff upper lip kind of thing. So anyway, <clears throat> um, yeah, and the, yeah, with assault, like nobody. And even I, after it happened, remember think, walking home, crying, asking myself, did this happen? Mm-hmm. And falling asleep as soon as I got home, as though nothing had happened, and woke mm-hmm. up the next morning really not clear if I had had a dream or not mm-hmm. about it. But the diagnosis later proved that I did. And, um, and so, yeah, it just went dark from there. And then, you know, um, uh, um, I... Um, I started to just keep going with hard drugs and, um, and then somebody introduced me to crystal meth and then that was, that mm. was it. All of a sudden there was this easier way to come down from cocaine and, um, it was a much different high and it was cheaper and I'm Scottish. So that was like, <laughs> like a go-to for me. Right. So, and, and it was, so now we're probably at about 2016 and I am spiraling. I am, I have, um, Hurt a lot of people, ruined a lot of jobs, always had to leave before I got mm-hmm. fired or go on a medical leave, but you know, just as things were starting, mm-hmm. you know, because I do well in my first three months and then it would start to, the facade would start to slip. And, uh, and then I got into injection drug use mm-hmm. and then that was, that was it. No more working, um, homelessness, uh, and, um, yeah, violence and so much, so much. So much suffering. And so from 2016 until 2022, I had been to treatment four times. I'd been to detox 17 times. I had been to the psych hospital once. 
and um, and just and would always have the same sort of pattern where I would I would have this incredible bottom and then um, would get my life back on track and I'd go to a smattering of meetings here and there and I would not use and I would um, get a job and I would get more money and then I'd get a car again and then everything would get better mm -hmm. and then the thought would come maybe I can just have mm -hmm. a bit of whiskey in my milk you know as it were <laughs> sort of thing which is disgusting analogy but um, it's absolutely gross yeah, yeah I know I don't get it but so um, and so that has that had been my life up until um, December 24th 2021 when I went to detox for, God willing, the very last time. Right. Um, I had uh, experienced an incredible amount of domestic violence. Um, my partner had beat the living shit out of me. I was homeless. I was turning tricks for a warm place to stay. Um, I, um, I mean, that's enough. That mm -hmm. was, you know, and, and all of the friends that I had sort of made in recovery had fallen away, and I was utterly alone, mm -hmm. utterly alone. And just so fed up, so fed up. And, and I know that like at the time I had gone into detox, I thought to myself, this is just going to be a little break mm -hmm. kind of thing. But then one day turned into seven and there was some clarity that was starting to come back. And then seven days turned into a month and I had moved into the Calgary Dream Center. And, mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then this thing started to settle in. And because I had lost so much in my life i don't know why but at this time it it just started to click mm -hmm. i like i would lay in bed sobbing about losing my dog losing my home losing my friends losing my and just the guttural sobbing mm -hmm. in bed and then in this moment i would stop and i would say meth caused this pain mm -hmm. in such an angry way over and over like a mantra a mm hundred -hmm. times saying it in bed kind of thing and be in an angry way mm -hmm. like just this is enough and um and i went to um i remember um just before i'd gone into detox i was at my best friend's dining room table just sobbing saying i'm never gonna get it i'm never gonna get it and then for some reason every single meeting i walked into after that was a birthday mm -hmm. meeting i've got 30 years i've mm -hmm. got 20 years i've got 10 years i've got five years and the heart, mind, and soul thought kind of thing, that whole being was like, if they can do it, so can I. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I believed it. And got a sponsor and worked the steps. Mm -hmm. uh, went to a meeting every day, sometimes twice a day, uh, and poured my everything into it. Didn't mm -hmm. get into relationships. Didn't, didn't try and look for work as soon mm -hmm. as I was done a treatment program. Like It was my everything. And so now, uh, now almost nine months later, a few weeks shy of nine months. Um, Congrats, man. Thanks. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm housed. Now I have a wonderful job mm -hmm. helping people who aren't quite ready to stop mm -hmm. yet, and I have uh, like a home and wonderful friends and a community, and I'm uh, I am the happiest I've ever been. Right on. So that's kind of the yeah the long and short of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, so I'm going to probably take it off track a little bit, but yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. I, I'm so curious because you mentioned this and from someone who is bisexual and has been, has been um, up until recently, had never really approached 
men in a healthy way, mm, right? Yeah. Um, I've learned more and more about this, about the domestic violence angle and the fact that apparently, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that there's quite a lot of violence, like with yes. some, like with, now obviously not all gay relationships, but it can be quite, quite regular. And of course, nobody believes you, mm -hmm. right? Like, because I, I, I mean, I've never been, I haven't been with the police when they go to a domestic with two men or mm -hmm. two women. Um, but I've heard enough stories about how there tends to be like control and violence involved. Mm -hmm. Like now, do you think that's more along the lines of when people are using, like I'm assuming there's probably more violence in the using relationships than non-using relationships, but I wouldn't really know. Yeah. I, I don't have a statistic for you. I don't mm. have researched for you. I just know from my own personal experience and from the relieving experience of other addicts in the program who say, yeah, me too, mm -hmm. um, that I know that when you mix substances, that it's not far off that violence is involved yeah. at all. Um, I do know from other people that, um, that domestic violence in queer relationships is a real thing. Mm -hmm. I do know that there is an even stranger dynamic when law enforcement gets involved because mm -hmm. if it's between two men, it's like, boys will be boys. They're just duking it out kind of thing. It's a mutual and, fight. Yeah, it's a yeah. mutual fight. And um, and it's hard. And, and the other thing that's difficult too is like my, the partner who did beat the living daylights out mm -hmm. of me was not the same stature as me. He was smaller in stature. Mm -hmm. And I've never thrown a punch in my life. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so they so, assumed you could do something about it. I did not call the police mm. because I was so afraid that if uh, they came, they would arrest me mm -hmm. because surely I would be the one that mm -hmm. was doing the beating, not um, that. And I think that that, I've heard that that is a common experience yeah. as well. And that, it, and that they don't report because they don't get believed. Yeah. And like you said, well, and, and men, and men, like heterosexual relationships where a woman is abusing a man men aren't believed yeah and it happens and All the time, you yeah. know like it's uh it's not obviously as endemic as mm -hmm. man to woman kind of thing but yeah. it's it's there and of course it is yeah, yeah yeah and still not believed right right yeah and i like it never ceases to amaze me how we will not us like you and i or mm. darcy necessarily but institutions in our country mm. will absolutely go directly to blaming the victim yeah especially if it's a sexual offense yeah. Yeah. which it's got to be wrapped up in the mindset to keep perpetuating it. Well, even the way that the Edmonton police handled the investigation of my sexual assault yeah. was deplorable. Yeah. And if I had had the financial resources to hire a lawyer mm -hmm. or anything like that, I think things would have gone much differently. Mm -hmm. But after a year-long investigation of not doing anything, it came back with, he said, she said. Yeah. And even the detective said to me a number of times, you don't really want to put someone to jail for, for a really long time if they haven't done this to you, do you? And it's like, oh my God. Jesus. Yeah, and I mean, I was at the Sexual Assault Center doing counseling in Edmonton for a number, two years Jesus. before I had gone to the police. Yeah. yeah. So the police um, then in Edmonton, in this particular case, mm. were not very good. Yeah. You were not very good. I still, I think they have to overall, they have a long way to go. Yeah. In yeah. terms of addressing same-sex relationships yeah. and addressing them differently than they would address male-female, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, or opposite-sex relationships, because 
but even in those relationships, they've got to get their head around the fact that women can abuse men. Yeah. Right? And yeah. that smaller men can abuse men. Yeah. Because there's, like, it was so weird because I, I, like I said, I just kind of came out and dated people in public, right? Mm -hmm. Like for the first time in my whole entire life, yeah. which I got to tell you was awesome, but also scary, right? Because yeah. I grew up thinking I needed to hide this shit, yeah. right? And so it's still that, that back and forth. But I could sense it in, in one of the guys that I went out with, mm. just that, like, if I didn't do things the way he wanted them done, mm -hmm. that there would be, like, potential violence. Mm -hmm. And I could kind of sense it, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I'm not necessarily afraid of that. Like, I've had, had, I've had to do it lots in my life. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to do it anymore. Right. Right? And so, because I guess, <laughs> maybe you can help me with this. So, as a bottom, mm -hmm. that people have told me in, in who have been out for long periods of time that the bottom usually gets abused mm. by the top, right? And I don't really know why that would be, except for maybe that power imbalance that can exist when there's someone who's a dom and someone who's a sub kind of thing. Yeah, well, sub and dom are different than top and bottom. For sure, they are. And they mean. can be they can be switched around. Yeah. I I I don't know that I've ever had any information come to me about um, about sexual position preference kind of thing. Yeah. Because um, it's more about control. Obviously, that's what domestic violence is all about. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, there is sort of this thing in in the queer community where they talk about being a bossy bottom mm. kind of thing and how that particular role. Rules okay. the roost and yeah. kind of and sets the tone and you know what I mean. Mm. So, so there's that where that comes from. But I think the reality is that regardless of what the position is, what mm. we are really saying is that it can come from anywhere and usually a very unsuspecting place. Yes, I think that's yeah. the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, because it's like this stuff is new to me, right? Like, yeah. I mean, when we went out for dinner and I told like the waiter was he was interested in the guy that I was with. So yeah. we just had this conversation and they, it was like unheard of to the waiter because he's younger because yeah. he's in his 20s probably. Yeah. Um, unheard of that I had to be hiding. Like he just couldn't yeah. get over it when I yeah. told him this is the first time I've been to dinner in public with a man. Yeah. Like in this capacity. Well, my roommate's son is I think 15 or 16, almost 16. Mm. And he, when he talks about he and his friends, they're all like identifying as pansexual mm. and polyamorous mm. and like you know what i mean they them but not binary and right? i'm like oh my god in high school mm -hmm. like you couldn't well because we couldn't have the language face. first of all yeah yeah but also we would have been killed yeah right yeah. like yeah. Yeah. and i don't i don't say that i over exaggerating like yeah. we could have been yeah and i know that when i was in high school in the states you just didn't talk about it Mm -hmm. We had one openly gay guy, and he jumped off the roof of our school. Yeah, like that's all we knew. Yeah, right about that because you just didn't talk about it. Yeah, even in California. Yeah, where everyone's so forward yeah. and free thinking, it yeah. was. It's taken a long time. Yeah, you know, um, I gotta say. So, can you tell me more about this uh, treatment center that's going to open up? Oh yeah, so there's, I mean, and it's called Stonewall, right? It's called Stonewall. So after the recovery riots? center, yeah, after right the on. riots, yeah. Uh, and uh, Stephen Archambault and um, Brittany Sawyer are spearheading it, and they um, are um, um, opening 
opening up an independent site probably in the spring of 2023 okay. um, under the auspices of Simon House. So Simon House is handling the charity sort of status and the... So they're managing their funds, basically? Yeah, managing the funds and yeah, and then giving them some... Um, I'm not actually too sure about the specifics of that piece. Okay. Yeah. But, um, the, but the need for it mm-hmm. is so great because people who are queer and wanting mm-hmm. to access recovery find it incredibly difficult to go into heteronormative mm-hmm. um, rooms uh, and be honest, open, and vulnerable. Let alone centers. Let alone centers, mm-hmm. right? Which are very, very difficult. Um, and there's a lot of heterosexism. There's a lot of blatant homophobia. There's a lot of microaggressions. There's a mm-hmm. lot of reasons why it's so uncomfortable. And you cannot do recovery without being vulnerable mm-hmm. and going into the places that you're afraid to go kind yeah. of thing. Um, one of the those pow- places got to be safe. Yeah. yeah. You know, like one of the powers of step five is hearing someone say, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. That's the healing part about step five yeah. is that this darkness that you think, you know, that thing that I did in a hotel room that mm-hmm. anyone would know but would judge me. And then to hear someone in a step five say, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. You know, nonchalantly. And you're like, what? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. But not as bad as me. No, no, worse. Like, yeah. you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it is so difficult to do that because part of coming out, the fear of coming out is, will you still love me? Mm-hmm. Will you still love yeah. me? And that is the fear that every gay, lesbian, bi, trans child faces mm-hmm. is that they're going to lose the love of not only their family, but yeah. they'll be evicted from their faith community. They'll be ostracized from their friend group and they'll be standing all alone. Yeah. Um, that's how deeply ingrained tribalism is for us. Like mm-hmm. the sense of belonging is so important. Well, and some of these tribes that we're talking about, mm-hmm. like especially 12-step fellowships, for mm-hmm. example, come from Christianity specifically. Yeah. And Christianity specifically is about power and control yeah. over everything else that's not Christian. When right? it's, yeah, in its, well, in, its con- in its most contorted sense, yeah, yeah. it really is. Yeah. Well, and for some of us who've experienced that religious abuse based on who we are, yeah. who we are as humans, um, it's it's harder to get around that, yeah. right? Like I notice it in the rooms, yeah. even though I've been around for a long time and, and sober, yeah. I still am quiet, Yeah. right? Like. Yeah. I wanted to talk about it at my birthday and I forgot about it. Yeah. But I don't know if I forgot because I didn't need to talk about it or if I forgot, forgot yeah. because it wasn't a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, one of the things that I have always struggled with is finding a queer positive space to recover. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> even in those spaces, it's still dominated by heterosexual people. No problem with that. Mm-hmm. Except that like when I'm going at the at one of the queer meetings that I go to in the city where people are saying their pronouns, like he, her, he, him, mm-hmm. they, them, she, her, we're not doing it because I'm obviously a man. I'm doing mm-hmm. it to stand in solidarity with the person who is non-binary That's in right. the room. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of people will make jokes about it, you know, like or, or something like that. And it's like you have mm-hmm. come into our house into our space Mm -hmm. and we have created this space because anytime we go to your meetings we don't feel comfortable Mm -hmm. to share the way that you share because the way that a man shares about his wife and his girlfriend Mm -hmm. and his experience with dating women and Mm -hmm. his all of these things or vice versa kind of thing like we have had to create space so Mm -hmm. that we can be vulnerable there and it's really difficult to find yeah Yeah. and it's also like 
it also becomes that mind trap mm -hmm. because when you're coming into recovery, you're looking for all the reasons why you shouldn't be in recovery. Yep. And as soon as you have one sniff of homophobia or mm -hmm. heterosexism or a microaggression or anything, you're like, yep, yep, see, this isn't for me. Yep. And the other thing that's great about it is too, like just to speak for 12 servers, is sometimes you're really surprised yeah. by that old farmer man from small town rural Alberta mm -hmm who says, I know you're gay and I think it's okay and mm -hmm. I just hope you recover. You know what I mean? Like that kind of... Yeah, and all they care about is that, I hope you yeah, can recover. Yeah, yeah. But it is like we, like, I mean, as queer people coming into the rooms, we're not only afraid of exposing who we are as addicts, mm -hmm. even though we're coming into a room full of addicts, we're, we're afraid of exposing ourselves to be hated even more. Which is what we've always experienced. Yeah. Which well, is what we I shouldn't say always, but what I experienced whenever I was open, yeah, it was some sort of microaggression, I guess is the word yeah, for it. Yeah, or some form of get back in your place. Yeah, you're a hetero male. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. and I mean, and it's no one else's fault around me growing up. Yeah, because they didn't know because I wasn't telling anybody. That's right. Yeah, and I wasn't telling anybody because of the way they talked about it in general. Yeah, not yeah. because of what they said to me. Yeah, but because of how they talked about those people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, whether it was homosexuality or any of that stuff, yeah. you, you just couldn't talk about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and if you, I mean, I guess the people who did ended up in trouble at times, yeah. right? Because like our, our high school, when that guy jumped off the roof, like none of us really understood why. Yeah. Right? Like it came out that he was gay yeah. after the fact. And I mean, over time, I put two and two together. Yeah. But it's like only because I felt like I wanted to jump. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. because I couldn't get what I wanted. I couldn't get what I needed. Like mm -hmm. um, the only time I ever got what I needed was when I was being abused by men. Mm -hmm. Right, as a kid, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that is not the way you get what you need. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. obviously uh, you're going to be fucked up. Yeah, when, you know, um, but it was it's so. As we're sitting here thinking about it, I'm just so disappointed that I forgot to talk about that yeah. at my birthday because it was important to me. Yeah, it was. It's huge to me, man. Yeah. Like to finally be able to sit and just like be with a man as I would have always been with a woman. Yeah. Um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it's a, it was a pretty big, it's a pretty big deal for me. Yeah. And so, well, and that's the thing like with recovery is that we're uncovering who we really are mm -hmm. and being okay with that. Mm -hmm. And that's that peace that comes with recovery is that I'm comfortable in my own skin because I faced all mm -hmm. these things and I actually love myself, right? And then to be able to do that, and it was great. Listen, the last couple of weeks, I got really twisted up. And then one of the little mind traps that I got to in my mm -hmm. recovery lately was this whole thing about like <clears throat> being in a heteronormative space mm -hmm. and the heterosexism and all, blah, 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 all these things. And, and I had to talk to somebody who is long-term in recovery and is queer. And they, they said to me, I know this is difficult. But you have to be out loud and proud in these meetings for the newcomer who's coming in who doesn't know that it's safe. Exactly. Because as soon as there's a queer person in the room who hears, I'm queer and I'm recovered, and mm -hmm. then they can identify that, okay, mm -hmm. that's something that I can follow too. So you got lots more birthdays to come up. Which is exactly why that, right? it's become more and more important, right? Yeah, yeah. Not just in the rooms, but in general, um, to just be a safe place for people who, yeah. are, who need it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I recognize, like you said, it just hasn't been safe, yeah. right? And that's yeah. why I haven't done it. It's yeah. because I have occasionally have talked in the past about like things I did out there in a general way in terms of sex, right? Yes, yeah. But of course, 
unless you're talking about now, it's it's over. Yeah. And lots of people think that's just the way it was, yeah. right? Yeah. Because for some of them it was. They were gay for pay or whatever the case yeah. may have been, right? Yeah. Which I get because we need what we need. Um, but that's just not what it was for me, mm-hmm. right? And I think, well, yeah, 18 years of, in, of sobriety and recovering have shown me that it's not that, mm-hmm. right? It's not... It's not what I made it out to be, yeah. right? And that yeah. the only way it's going to be different is if I approach it differently, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, but yeah, it's just, it's such a, lots of birthdays left. Yeah. Lots of birthdays left, yeah. yeah. So you do have a good sponsor too. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I had Bethany who sponsored me in the AA steps and mm-hmm. I have Laura who sponsors me in the NA steps. Right on. Yeah, so I've got like a good, I've got, got a good really good circle around me yeah excellent yeah, yeah and so you also took your yoga training didn't you well i have i did that in 2010 2010 i okay. did do that but yeah i was looking at doing a kundalini yoga teacher training and yeah. oh yeah that's right yeah that's right cool so is there anything else you want to tell people matt about yourself or anything that you might someone might hear you say and be like oh maybe maybe i should try that oh my god i don't know i uh, like what you said like if it was up to me, it's these be out loud in these meetings. Yeah, that yeah. resonates so loudly with me. Well, because there's a point in your recovery when going to a meeting is less about what you can get and, and more about give. what you can give. Yeah. Uh, and like after a while of hearing the same old timer mm-hmm. give the same share over and over, mm-hmm. you learn that that's not about you, yeah. right anymore. Like kind of thing and. And I even find myself now, I have, like, whenever we do a step meeting or something mm. like that, I'll have the same sort of spiel for the same <laughs> stepping. It's like a high school hero or something yeah. talking about football. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, like, it's, it just becomes less and less about you. I don't know. I think, like, I know relapse is something mm. that I feel really strongly about okay. uh, and talking about in recovery. Mm. Um, and I know that. Uh, because it's a very big part of my story, mm-hmm. and especially if you're Narcotics Anonymous, you know it's such a big thing that we have a whole chapter about it in the mm-hmm. basic text. In uh, in one of the things that really grinds my gear is when people say relapse is not a part of recovery, mm. and I think what they mean to say is that it it wasn't a part of their recovery, it doesn't and have it doesn't to have to be a part of your recovery, but it absolutely happens. Mm-hmm. All the time. And um, and I think that we create sort of this split in our minds mm-hmm. because we because we hold such a strong boundary around relapse bad, mm-hmm. don't do it. And that's important. We need that community mm-hmm. to hold us to that standard. But at the same time, it makes it even more difficult to come back mm-hmm. because there's so much shame around the fact that it's happened. Um, can't seem to get it, not, you know, all those things. And um, I am in this moment so grateful for all of my relapses mm-hmm. because they have taught me so much and they have made my recovery that much stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just, and that's part of the gist of that chapter in the Narcotics Anonymous basic text is that if you don't die, you come back mm-hmm. and you come back stronger. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I look back on my recovery and I think about all the learning, you know, like, you know, people usually say in meetings these things like um, uh, get a sponsor, do the steps, mm-hmm. get involved in service, 90 meetings in 90 days. They do all these things. And I look back on all of my relapses and I see how every time I came back, I incorporated one of those things. Yeah. 
<laughs> until I incorporated all of those things. You built it up over time. I built it up over time, mm. right? And um, and then it finally, it finally mm. clicked. I mean, had I done all of those things all at once, who knows what would have happened? Probably I wouldn't be so passionate about relapse. But <laughs> yeah. like the thing that I tell people all the time is it's not about the fuck up. It mm. is about the get up. Well, um, and, and honestly, relapse brings up an important, uh, to me, something that I've, I always think about is, well, before I found AA, I relapsed all the time. Yeah. I was constantly trying to control my drinking. Yeah. That's a relapse to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. Once I figured out, so that's a part of my story too. Yeah. It's just not since AA. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean, I, I spent years trying to like perfect my drinking. Yes. And control it and yeah. only do it one day a week or yeah. two days a week or... You know, I couldn't do it two days a week. I had to do it three days a week, yeah. right? Yeah. Until it became seven. Yeah. You know, but that that was the process. Yeah. And that includes relapse. Yeah. Like 100%. Well, and two, we're pretty smart people, mm -hmm. right, as addicts. So, like, every reservation that I have that comes up, I can talk myself out of my recovery without talking myself out of recovery. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean... Um, like I can, you know, like the thing about the moderation or mm. like, well, I'm Cali sober, just marijuana kind of thing. Mm. And it's like, nah, like it's gotta be everything. Right. Mm. All of those, like, I feel like I have, well, I did feel like I have pot, I've done everything I possibly can to trick myself out mm. of recovery with the reservations that kind of come yeah. up. But I mean, even the last two weeks where I got really contorted about, heterosexism and mm. being queer in meetings kind of thing proved that I almost talked myself out of recovery again kind yeah. of thing. So like by getting mad, but because I've relapsed so many times because I've done this so many times, mm. there was a moment where I was like, Oh, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. 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 So keep trying. Yeah. That's the key. Keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That's fantastic. Great.